for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. On this Thursday night, we explore the best in indoor dining and how to plan for your perfect outdoor meal with food critic and author Chris Nuttall-Smith. He's not only just finished a cross-country restaurant journey from Newfoundland to BC to see how eateries are faring these days, he's also just released a cookbook called Cook It Wild. Sensational prep-ahead meals for camping, cabins, and the great outdoors. He tells us all about both of them. Representatives from Chinatowns across North America gathered in Vancouver this week for a first-of-its-kind conference looking at how to preserve and revitalize the historic neighborhoods and talk about challenges and successes they all face. What was learned, we find out. But first, we dig into some numbers released this week by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation that show Canada has the highest level of household debt to GDP in the G7. In fact, the highest outside of Australia in the Western world. Why is our debt load growing, not shrinking? And we get some advice on how to better manage your debt, especially in our increasingly cashless society where purchases are just a tap or touch away. We're going to look at something. I I, I suspect you may have seen this headline this week because it made news kind of around the world. Canada now has the highest level of household debt in the G7. Mortgages make up about 75% of that owed money. This is all according to the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Uh, Again, the highest of any G7 country. And the amount owed by Canadian households is higher than the country's entire GDP. And high home prices, of course, to blame. But in other places, such as the US and the UK, for instance, it's actually shrunk in the past 10 years. The only Western nation that is higher than ours is Australia whose uh, household debt rate as a share of GDP is 119%. Uh, here is the Deputy Chief Economist of the CMHC, Aled ab Ayrworth. There's a lot of debt going into buying housing, and that's because there's not a lot of housing available. So we need a drastic, dramatic increase in housing supply in order to try and address this. If the economy goes south, Handling or paying off all of this debt is going to be extremely painful and will be a uh, a severe problem for the Canadian economy. Now, he points out that, you know, not all debt is bad, but high levels of debt can do real damage when a recession or some other negative economic event happens. Uh, you know, we are safeguarded by pretty good institutional framework for our financial regulation system. We're pretty solid that way. But uh, most Canadian borrowers will be able to withstand elevated mortgage rates like we have now. But what if something goes wrong? We thought we'd try to dig into these numbers a little bit more to see what they really mean. And helping us do that is a regular guest on the show. Don Drummond is the Stauffer Dunning Fellow at Queen's University and the former chief economist at uh, Toronto Dominion Bank. Don, thanks so much. Hi, you're most welcome. So uh, tell me about these numbers, because as a headline, you know, even the BBC covered it, as a headline, it kind of jumps off the page. You're like, wow, that's a lot of debt and it's rising. Uh, Cause for alarm? Well, first of all, when you want to do an international international comparison, obviously you have to pick some common factor. So it's measured as household debt relative to gross domestic product. But while you're doing their surveys on uh, codes, uh, Ask people in the survey if they know what the heck that number means. I bet right, you won't that, find 5%. I mean, what that's does why it mean? Here, Don. That's why well, you're most here. people probably don't even really have a good handle on gross domestic products. So I, I don't think it's a particularly, yes, that we'd be the worst, that means something. Whoever wants to be the worst in anything, but that it, 
that that particular statistic probably doesn't mean anything. I think if you want to relate it more to a household budget, because people understand their household budget, household debt is almost double household income. So, you know, somebody can imagine that. Let's just say your household income is $60,000. You know that would suggest your household debt is is well over a hundred thousand, and that that would ring home to people. I think even more telling than that is what does it cost you to service that debt? And you can imagine again as a household, you don't really want to spend more than a quarter of all your income servicing debt because you've got other you got to buy food, you got to buy those restaurants that you're talking about, yeah, and uh, you know clothing. You might want to do a trip. You got to do transportation, your car, and all these other things. So you're pretty squeezed if you're spending more than one quarter of your income servicing debt. That's things that you bought in the past or you might be investing in. Over a quarter of all households in Canada are paying over a quarter of their income in household debt. So I, I think those are more meaningful way. I mean, however you shake it, it's a lot of debt. And, you know, I'm sorry to say, but you pulled my trigger point when you said elevated interest rates. Interest rates are not elevated at the moment. True they're enough. the second lowest they've ever been. They only seem elevated because they were almost zero for a while. But And, and I, that has meaning because... There's a whole generation of younger people, their entire adult life and their entire borrowing life, they were used to these super low interest rates. But I can tell them if it's any comfort, um, you know, there's there's records of interest rates in Europe going back to 1,200. They've never been this low for a 1,000 years. So the, the, that was the abnormal period. Unfortunately, a lot of people told them it was going to stay that way forever. So it's not, and it's not just my generation. I mean, my first mortgage, nineteen eighty-two, was seventeen percent. I know a thing or two about higher interest rates. But my parents' generation, when they came out of the Second World War and bought their houses, by legislation, mortgage rates were six percent. Now, my generation thought those sounded like a really great deal, but that seems really high right now. And remember, you know, elevated interest rates, you know. The Bank of Canada's policy rate is 4.5, but almost all bond yields are around 3%. That is really low, except for from 2008 to 2022, they were even lower yeah. than that. But they're actually below the rate of inflation. What should we make of this? Because a lot was made, of course, that in the last decade, um, the household debt as percentage of GDP in the U.S. and the U.K. has actually fallen. And, and I was trying to make sense of that number as well. Again, you've mentioned that that's not necessarily the best metric by which to measure our own personal finances, but it does, it does jump off the page. Well, it's a story about housing. So three quarters of all that household debt is mortgages. And of course, the reason why the mortgages are high is the cost of houses. Um, there aren't that many cities in Canada where you can get, I was going to say a nice, let's even say a decent house for less than 700, 800,000, many Vancouver and Toronto being prime examples. It's pretty uh, depressing what you get for a million dollars and even more than that. So even, even if you have a pretty good income of about a hundred thousand dollars and maybe you can put a 10% down payment, that's a hundred thousand. You're talking about one huge mortgage. And even with modest interest rates, and I emphasize, I know people think they're high. They're not. They're still modest. But even with modest interest rates, that's a lot of payment. And our housing prices have gone up much more than they did elsewhere, in part because of the really low interest rates for a long time. That got reflected in strong demand for housing, but also in part our really high immigration numbers. Everything in economics is demand and supply. 
the supply is limited. We have not in most municipalities gone fulsomely into higher density. And some like Vancouver be again be a good example. You've got geographical restrictions on where and how you can expand. And yet when you have 500,000, which is the current target for immigration coming in, you've got a lot of demand for housing. And it's been reflected in very high housing prices. And, you know, this is my rant. I've been saying this now for over a decade. I don't think any durable benefit came from having lower interest rates at almost zero for a long time. It didn't improve the affordability of housing because all it did is push up the price of housing. Yep, you got a, you could get a 1.65% mortgage. Lots of people got in at those really low rates. But you had a gigantic amount of debt that you had to apply that interest rate to. And now the rates are just a bit higher, but your debt's still really high. Yeah, I mean, there was talk this week of sort of danger signs, if anything, if there should be some sort of, uh, you know, if, if, if the economy hits a bump. I mean, employment is still high. People seem to, you know, the economy still seems to be doing okay. But there is this fear that all carrying all this debt, in other words, if the boat should start to sink, you're loaded down with a lot of rocks. Well, even even not talking about a bump, just one thing that's going to happen pretty automatically and, uh, and is a focus of a concern of our financial sector regulator, the Office of Superintendent of Financial Institutes, are the variable mortgage rates. Right. At the peak of their popularity, half of new mortgages were variable rates. And historically, people have done better over time, on average, using variable rates, and people went into them in a very heavy deal. But what is happening, the banks have been shielding them for a long time. They've typically not raised the payments until they've hit a trigger. And so a lot of people, if they had been paying $1,000 a month before at the really low interest rate, are continuing to pay $1,000 a month. But what is happening is the amortization period is being lengthened and lengthened and lengthened. And a lot of people, actually, the outstanding size of the mortgage is actually going up. And so the day of reckoning is going to come when the period was a three-year variable mortgage period, whatever the period was, and they were typically in that three- to five-year period. When that's up, they're going to get a rude awakening. A lot of them will get a rude shock when they realize maybe they had a $300,000 mortgage before, and now they got a higher one. You know, the banks have been sending them notices about that, but does everybody pay any attention to that? And, of course, people had really rock-bottom fixed mortgage rates are going to have to renew at some point, and they're going to face much higher. So, so we don't even really need to hit a bump. We're going to get a financing squeeze just if interest rates stay at the level they're at night right now, never mind even if they go up further. John Drummond is with us this half hour, the Stafford Dunning Fellow at Queen's University, former chief economist at TD. We're talking about Canada this week. Uh, some news from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation showing that we become uh, that we have the highest level of household debt uh, compared to GDP in the G7, which uh, we're, we've sort of broken down. Don was uh, quick to point out that most of us don't really understand what that might mean, but we do have a lot of debt. We know that, and I think that rings true to just about everybody. A lot of it is mortgage debt. Uh, Don, the, the banks came out this week with their with their uh, earnings statements and we saw some of these headwinds that you were talking about reflected in what they're talking about as well yeah the banks have been on a great run for a long time and on the surface of it you would think the higher interest rates would help them because they make their money on the difference between 
what they pay out in interest and what they can get from their consumers in interest. And it gets hard to get much of a difference between that when the rates get really rock bottom. But, you know, some of these financial strains are affecting them as well. The results are good, but the results we've seen so far aren't quite as good as one would expect. But, uh, you know, you put that in a longer-term perspective, the Canadian banks have been doing very well. And, of course, we have to be always mindful in Canada we don't have that shakiness in our financial sector the way we have uh, Silicon Bank and, and the like that have been in trouble of late in the United States. So, so that gives us some comfort of the resilience of the Canadian economy. So as we as we head now, we, we we've talked a lot about how much debt is out there. Clearly, interest rates don't look like they're coming down anytime soon. As you mentioned, a lot of people with variable mortgages or with fixed mortgages that are coming to term, like mine, are going to have to re, have to pay a lot more than we used to. It feels like we're heading into some, you know, a bit of, as you mentioned, a bit of a reckoning coming up. And I wonder just overall how well prepared we are for it, as yeah. Canada generally. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you let off. Uh... What what can you do about it? Again, my thought was this is not going to excite anybody, but spend just a little bit of time looking at the history because I think that will convince people to look at the history of interest rates, that interest rates are not particularly high at the moment. And, of course, the corollary of that is they're not going to come down very much. Uh, it was quite distressing until a couple of weeks ago, the expectation how quickly mm-hmm. interest rates are going to come down and, and how far they would come down. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, yes, at some point, if and when we get back to 2% inflation, we're a long way from that. We're running a little over double that rate. But, you know, that that Bank of Canada policy rate may go down from 45 to somewhere between 2 and 3. But I, I come back, bond yields from one year way out to 30 years are all around 3%. Those are extraordinarily low. And, you know, keep in mind, a five-year mortgage rate is keyed off a five-year bond yield, so they're not particularly high, and I don't think there's any realistic reason to think they're coming down. So I guess the first thing you can do is don't assume this is a temporary problem. We'll ride that out, and we're going to go back to near-zero interest rates. And I think I really hope central banks really look into their hearts and their souls and, and realize that this kind of experiment at keeping interest rates almost zero did not do anybody any favors, and hopefully they won't try to do that again. So obviously you have to be very careful. People have to look at their own budget. And, of course, in, increasingly for Canada, given our aging profile, people have to look at that big tail-end expense. I mean, lots of people are going to be retired at 60 and 65 and could well live into their 90s or even more. Fewer and fewer people have got decent company-sponsored pension plans, so you have to generate a fair bit of household savings on one's own. And, of course, the bigger the mortgages are at the beginning, the harder it is to shift into that net savings. So people have to be very cognizant about that. But, then, you know, here, here's where you get very sympathetic to people. Obviously, you've got to be very careful in what you spend. You don't want to get big mortgages and the like. But what you do, you can't buy a house for a reasonable yeah. price almost anywhere in Canada. And look at rents. The average rents price of bad, a one-bedroom yeah. apartment is $2,000 a month. How can somebody making forty or $50,000 a year afford that? Yeah, and, and, and that's why people go into deep debt to get mortgages. Don, as always, thank you so much for clarifying this. Borrow from mom and dad, or take <laughs> it, whatever you can, can get. If you can. Don, as always, have a great night. Thanks again. Okay, bye. Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, the Mounties. 
5,400 men who maintain the law superbly well in Canada. A police force that has gained the admiration and respect of the world. Though many of the stories of the brave and fearless Mountie are just stories, he's still a special kind of man, an exceptional kind of policeman, a symbol to all the world of justice and principle, courage and courtesy. Wow. That was from 1961, by the way, in case you were wondering how old that was. A lot of it sounds very, very dated, by the way, of course. That was an Encyclopedia Britannica documentary on the RCMP. Uh, Much has changed in the 60-some years, 62 years since that was made. But it gives you an idea of the mythology of the Mounties, that the the mythology that the forest was built on the Mounties always get their man, the old saying goes. Well, this week marks 150 years since Parliament voted the service into existence back on May 23rd, 1873, and is now recognized as the official founding of what would eventually become the RCMP. Uh, The Prime Minister marked the occasion on Tuesday by acknowledging mistakes the force has made in the past and expressing hope for change, but also called the RCMP one of the most respected police organizations in the world. Certainly one of the best known ones, right? Uh, in a statement, the force says it plans to use this anniversary to share the RCMP's efforts to create a more modern organization and ensure the safety of all Canadians. Of course, they would say something like that. But before we look at the challenges that lie ahead for the force, let's look back at the history and how the RCMP became the force that we know it as today. Steve Hewitt is an associate professor in North American history at the University of Birmingham, and he's authored of several books on the RCMP, including Spying 101, the RCMP's secret activities at Canadian universities. Steve Hewitt, thank you. Thanks for having me. The RCMP at 150, it feels so intertwined with Canada's history writ large that it's sort of hard to mark this anniversary without thinking about the country's anniversary. Uh, But it comes at a difficult time for the force, but also, I mean, it's worth looking back at just what an impact one police force has had on Mm -hmm. this country's history. Yeah, I think the RCMP is rather unique in the sense of, as you said, not just being a a federal police force. I mean, look at the U.S. The U.S. has the FBI, but the FBI isn't a national symbol uh, to many Americans uh, the way that the RCMP is for Canada. So there's that weird combination where you've got an extremely powerful institution interwoven with the history of Canada, but also as a kind of almost not quite founding myth, but certainly a part of the myth at least the way that some people identify Canada. How did that come about? Because I realized that the force sort of came about uh, due to sort of uh, emergencies, needs, right? Mm. Whether it was the Northwest Territories or the gold rush or the depression. I mean, the RCMP kind of grew into Canada as the needs grew up. So Canada likes to see itself as this uh, peace, order, and good government, this very ordered place. And of course, what better symbol for that than this national police force? And so when the police are sent westward uh, in the 1870s, you know, they're sent to basically prepare the way for widespread European settlement and to ward off uh, any American incursions. And so they're asserting sovereignty uh, and they're kind of a paramilitary force as well in in doing that. So at least for the Western part of Canada, they are there at the beginning for that European Canadian society that would be built in, in Western Canada over the subsequent decades. And then we see it expand to what we now recognize as sort of this provincial police force less than 100 years ago at this point. But still that what we now know as the, as the RCMP is about a century old. 
Yeah, so uh, there's several anniversaries. So 1873, the 150th, that's the creation of the force. The actual deployment is the following year. But the the name Royal Canadian Mounted Police, when it becomes a national police force, actually dates from around uh, 1919, 1920, at the end of the First World War. And there was no uh, certainty that the force would survive because it actually stopped being, it initially was a police force in Alberta and Saskatchewan when they were created. Then because of the First World War, because of a Mountie unit going to Europe, uh, it became only a federal police force. So it operated in the north of Canada and Alberta, Saskatchewan had their own provincial police forces, as did the other Canadian provinces. But because of the depression, the Mounties end up coming back and replacing the provincial police forces in, in uh, Atlantic Canada, or at least in the Maritimes. Uh, and then Saskatchewan actually is first in 1928 and then Alberta. So and that's where you get, again, that kind of unique aspect, because, again, I mentioned the FBI. Imagine the FBI if it also was the state police. No. And a number of you. So I spent 10 years in Saskatchewan where, the, you know, it's like I grew up in southern Ontario where the RCMP really meant nothing other right. than they handed out the gray cup. You know, and they appear in those uniforms. But in Saskatchewan, you know, they might be your local police force, the provincial police force, there's a museum in Regina. So it's that weird situation where it's not just a national police force, but a provincial police force, a city police force in some places. It makes it unique, but also I think it's caused some of the problems that the Mounties have experienced over the decades. I guess in some ways, part of where they've struggled through their history is they've always been morphing into something different and being asked to fill these gaps. And and it feels like here we are, you know, 150 years later, and they've sort of grown into what they've become. And it's very hard. It's very hard to turn that ship around. They're caught in a bit of a trap. And this is where the myth, I think, comes in, where in the, I think it was the 1990s, where the leadership of the RCMP wanted to allow Mounties to wear, Sikh Mounties to wear turbans right. because they needed a more diverse police force for places such as British Columbia. And there was a huge backlash against not from the Mounties, but from the wider public who had this mythic notion of that hat, even though it's an American hat, it's not some uniquely Canadian hat. And so that became an obstacle then to try to diversify the police force. And I think it's really hard to bring that kind of fundamental change when something is taken on the air of myth rather than simply being a state institution, which is effectively what it is. And of course, being a state institution, it has been involved with both the good and the bad of the state over a century and a half now. So its history is full of scars as well, which makes it hard for an organization. So in that sense, it is sort of, you're right, it is sort of trapped by its own mythology and the way that it's been used for the last 150 years. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you think about it, and again, this is the way that the way we interpret interpret history changes. I mean, it's hard not now to see it as a very colonial institution being sent to uh, what became Western Canada to help basically move Indigenous peoples off their lands onto reserves to prepare the way uh, for European Canadian settlers. I, again, that's where it's a bit of an impediment, but it's been a sort of a toolkit for various governments over the years. I mean, for the longest time, it didn't have a union because 1919, there's a Winnipeg general strike where the Winnipeg city police go on strike because they're unionized. So the Mounties can't be unionized. So they're there to be used. I think they're used in Montreal as well when there's police strikes decades later. They're this paramilitary force. They're for a long time, the longest time, they're Canada's main domestic spy agency before mm -hmm. CSIS is created. Again, I think the more you take on, the more the chances you will trip up rather than simply be a small elite force, perhaps more like the FBI, although obviously the FBI has had its own share of scandals over the uh, the decades. 
it's interesting to look back at it now, 150 years later, and just see, see how many how many different things it's done over the years. In some ways, when you look at it, and I covered the Air India inquiry, where there was a lot made of a new CSIS and why the RCMP was taken out of that uh, spy agency realm and so on. And just how much, I mean, it's had a lot of growing pains over the years, a lot of bumps and bruises as it's gone on. And yet when you go abroad, what's funny about the RCMP is when you're abroad, everyone knows about the police force. I mean, I guess people know about the FBI too from, you know, an MI5, from movies and so on. But very few of them could explain what they look like just by looking right. at a picture. And the sure. RCMP has been great for our soft power in some senses. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the Queen's funeral here in the UK, I mean, there was a Mounties sort of leading that procession. I think there were some as well at the coronation of uh, King Charles III. Uh, when I moved here to the UK about 20 years ago, people knew about the Mounties through the program Due South, which was shown right. here. Uh, there was also adverts with uh, advertisements with uh, someone called Malcolm the Mountie. So that, yeah, so that that cultural symbol is known, not maybe the whole historical uh, luggage that goes with it, but certainly that that image, as you said, is really uh, no, is globally known. Steve Hewitt, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. We will take the time now to properly digest and understand the recommendations and the conclusions and the opportunities that the Commission has put forward for us to take up. There's no question there need to be changes, and there will be, but we will take the time to get those right. There's the Prime Minister back on March the 30th. That's when the Mass Casualty Commission released its final report after nearly three years after a gunman killed 22 people in Nova Scotia in 2020. It makes 100 recommendations. A lot of them apply to the RCMP. Of course, the RCMP was the force uh, handling that uh, that incident in Nova Scotia. But it was much broader than that. The, uh, the Those who oversaw the inquiry really took a much deeper look at the RCMP and some of the problems um, with the organization right now. One of its recommendations was an external review of the force um, and that they thought potentially could lead to what the report described as a reconfiguration of policing in Canada. So lots to think about as we've talked about. It's the 150th anniversary of the force and uh, we looked backwards in the last 15 minutes. We're going to look forwards now and to help us do that is uh, Eli Sopo. He's an associate professor and MBA faculty of leadership Oh, sorry, the Associate Professor uh, in Management at the University of Canada West and former RCMP civilian employee and former RCMP Director director of Change Management. Uh, Eli, thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks for, uh, for having me on the show. Yeah, uh, tell me a bit about your thoughts on 150 years. I know change management, I know what you, I know what you did. That's, that's a tough task at, at a big force like that. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts on 150 years? Well, I tell you, it, uh, it hasn't progressed that far. It's sort of, instead of back to the future, it's back to the past. Uh, right. There's been numerous commissions over and over and over. I served for two years as Director of National Research on Change Management of the RCMP, and that was because we had yet another commission that looked at the RCMP, and it was called, guess what, Rebuilding the Trust. And that was way back right. in 2009. Numerous, numerous, numerous recommendations. None were followed, basically. It is a place that really is in la-la land. It is not changing whatsoever. But the problem that's happening here is that we're losing, the organization is losing a great deal of trust by the public. It's being eroded. And what we're seeing on the streets every day is, frankly, uh, a real lack of uh, respect for policing overall. We're seeing far more violence against police officers and some of the very tragic. 
And I, I was with the RCMP for 20 years in research across the country, and I still deal with a lot of police officers, the RCMP. And I tell you, they are uh, they are sad people. They are feeling right. very demoralized, very down. They're doing a hell of a job with what they've got, and it's not enough. It's, it, it strikes me that it's a systemic issue and has always been in some ways. The individual officers themselves, I mean, I know there's, there's been questions about whether that whole depot process works or not, whether the way that they're modeled in terms of how they're moved around works or not. But at the same time, for individual officers, I mean, it feels like this is a structural issue and they've always had a hard time trying to change the structure. That's why we're talking about this again, uh, you know, 14 years after the last report you were talking about. Yeah, you may, you're, you're, you're very profound, actually, and very good insights when you use those two words of both systems and structure. When you look at organizations, well, they have a culture. is how we get along with each other and what is right and what is wrong and what we reward and that kind of thing. But a culture really ends up having a structure. Now, who reports to who, how many levels there are, that kind of thing. And the systems are, well, the systems that keep the thing alive, and whether it's a HR or communications or anything else. And when you combine all those things together, like any organization, you end up having an impact on the people who work there, the employees. And we call that the workplace climate. And I can tell you, uh, uh, probably over 15,000 employees at the RCMP, both members and civilians that I've looked at over the last many years, and we're still doing it, there's, there's a really poor workplace climate in terms of lack of morale, lack of respect, just it, it really is a very dysfunctional place because, as you said, rightfully, the systems are broken. They don't work very well. The culture is all over the map. And the structure, well, goodness gracious. The RCMP nationally is really, come on, let's face it, a junior ministry of the federal government reporting up to captain. Right. I mean, and yet when you look at the history of the force, at least the mythology of the force, it's very different. Um, and I guess when you look at how many things the RCMP is tasked with doing, it has an identity issue, uh, clearly. But how do you fix it now? Because clearly what's happening now is you're seeing municipalities, whether it be the Surreys of the world or other part, you know, provinces looking at, at the RCMP and thinking, well, maybe there's an, uh, an alternative here. And there it feels is an like, alternative, and it's yeah. one we... we uh, we walk around the edges on and we bite on the edges when nothing is ever done. And that is, frankly, to really completely restructure it. We use the words. The, the commission on uh, uh, that out of Nova Scotia, Mass Casualty Commission, talked about restructuring the whole darn thing. And absolutely, yeah. that should be done. Right now, you have everything in one big pot. You have provincial policing, rural policing, federal policing, international policing. You just stir up that pot and it's not going anywhere. Now, you mentioned a good thing about change, and what is change? Well, in any place to get change, you need some sense of urgency, like we've got to do something. I think we've already established a sense of urgency to get this thing fixed. Uh, but the next stage in the change process is a sense of purpose, like why are we changing stuff? And I don't think we've actually figured out what is policing today in the, you know, in 2023 what should it be? What is the profession all about? Is it about policing? Is it about social work? Is it about all the other things that they're doing, which was never really initially part of policing? No. What do you tell our CMP officers out there? Because I know they're having trouble recruiting. Morale's not great, sure. clearly. Uh, but, you know, they are the police force in many parts of this country. They are identified around the world as Canada's police force to, to most. What do you tell our CMP officers out there now? Do you think there's hope on the horizon for them? You know, I, I, I hate to say this, and, and, I, and I say this with the greatest and greatest respect, because many are my friends, and I know many of them. No, under this current structure and system, as you've talked about, there is no hope. 
because, frankly, you know, you can build hope if you initiate something, start something, and carry it through. How many commissions do we need? How many tragedies do we need? And, frankly, the members I know, uh, I mean, they've put on a brave face and they do a hell of a job, but they're losing hope as well. And that's why people are not joining. They're saying, oh, my gosh, you know, where is this thing going? What would be, if you could take a first step then? to turn this ship around, what would it be? Well, again, when we talk about urgency and purpose, who who determines the purpose and what we do? And that's the government. And it's the federal government in this case. Frankly, they don't really see it as a crisis. If it was a big crisis, they'd be doing something about it. They're not doing anything about it. What they need to do is really, really get some gumption and say, listen, provinces, we're not going to renew contracts, by, and that's what they do. They sign a contract with the province to provide the RCMP uh, to each individual province, except Quebec and Ontario. Uh, and they say, listen, we've got to get out of this contract policing, the provincial kind of rural, small-town policing. We will only be a federal police service, like the FBI or you know, multiple agencies in the States. They need right. to pick what they're going to do, what they're going to be good at. Right now, they're not good at anything. Credit a federal police service that does the kind of big stuff, uh, organized crime and all the other things, and let the provinces, let those provinces take over policing and do it much like Ontario and Quebec to some degree. Right. And it feels like here we are at 150 years and maybe this is the time. Uh, Eli Sopo, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for your time and the good, insightful comments you had. Thank you. I remember being in Sweden about 10 years ago and it was the first time I walked into a store and I, you know, dutifully gone and got some Swedish kroner and tried to pay with them. And the shop attendant said, no, we don't take cash. I thought, what? What do you mean you don't take cash? They didn't take cash. Well, 10 years later, Sweden is perhaps the most cashless place anywhere, about 90%, uh, more than 90% of transactions in Sweden are cashless. And it's similar in other places like the UK, Finland, the US is around 75% uh, as a percentage of all payments are cashless. Uh, Here in Canada, by 2030, cash purchases will only make up about 10% of money spent in Canada, according to a prediction from uh, Moneris Solutions Corporation, compared to 35% of overall transactions back in 2014. Uh, Certainly the pandemics accelerated that because, you know, remember there was that whole period where we couldn't take cash. We've been talking about QR codes. We couldn't touch menus. We couldn't pay with cash. Um, QR codes. We'll talk about those in a minute again. Uh, But all of a sudden we were said, you can't use cash. So more and more of us just sort of moved on to other things. Uh, But on the whole, we've been slowly but surely making the move away from cash to some extent or towards uh, those kinds of transactions from ATMs to interact all the way through, um, all of it towards less cash. This is Mark Hayward from York University. I don't know if we often pause to think how strange it is to just pause in the middle of the street pay a bill on your phone while monitoring your investments. These are both characteristically modern experiences, but also very peculiar in understanding how this became something that we think is all right to do. Yeah, that was a great episode of uh, Global's The New Reality from about six months ago on Cashless Canada. But we were talking about household debt earlier and the price of everything is up. And one of the big challenges with cashless is managing our budgets, right? It's so much easier to spend when credit is either a tap or a touch away 
at all times. And given how high household debt is these days in this country, given that interest rates don't look like they're coming down anytime soon, maybe this is time to also get some lessons on how we can better adapt to a cashless Canada, not completely, but otherwise pretty cashless, uh, and make sure we don't spend too much. So to help us do that is Bruce Celery. He's CEO of Credit Canada, Canada's longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency. Bruce, thank you. Hello there. So this is, I mean, I've, I've always been really interested about this cashless thing. The first time I ever encountered it was in Sweden, I guess about 10 years ago. And I, you know, it was a jaw dropper. What do you mean you don't, what do you mean you don't take cash, period? Yeah. And here we are 10 years later. And I mean, Sweden, I think, is up in the 95 percentile, yeah. uh, no cash. But we've, we're really, since the pandemic, it's really accelerated. Amazing and spectacular and horrifying and upsetting in equal measure. It has been happening for a while, as you say. It's so much easier for consumers to not have to count cash, make sure we have cash on hand. It's so much easier for retailers, businesses of all stripes because it's electronic. It's cheaper. And I'd say it's safer too, right? Like you don't have to have cash on site. um, So a robber can't steal it. Staff can't steal it. So lots of benefits. But the big worry for me is it eliminates friction, friction. So as a consumer, I want lots of friction when it comes to my spending. As a business, I want no friction. Yes, I indeed. want it to be so easy for you. You go on Amazon and you hit the one click button and there's literally a package at your door like six hours later. I was I was curious to know because I know this has been going on for some time but studies into this into this idea of friction or how easy it is to use cards versus uh cash goes back to the late 70s. I mean they've been looking at this for a long time yeah. and the results are pretty consistent. Every single study says we are more impulsive when we pay with credit. And secondly, we buy more unhealthy things. So if you're going out to, I'm going to oversimplify the example, you go out to lunch and you have 20 bucks in your pocket and you buy your lunch. If you go out to that same food court, but with a credit card, you're going to spend more on said lunch and you're going to double down on the apple fritters. So it's not just that you spend more, but you buy less healthy things. We we also have lower emotional attachment to the things we buy on credit because it doesn't feel like our money. So you go and you spend $200, 10 crisp $20 bills on the most extraordinary sweater. It's just spectacular. You bring it home and you cherish it. You keep it in glass, encased in glass. If you buy that exact same sweater with a credit card, it's like, ah, oh, whatever. You don't even pick it up off the floor at the end of the night. Put it out. Who cares? The psychological pain of paying is the term that I read. The psychological pain pain of paying. I thought that was quite telling. Do you think it's true for, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm, I was born in 1970. So of course, in my case, I grew up with, you know, I had a paper route. We collected cash. I mean, I, you know, I've had a long attachment to cash and, and whenever I've wanted to save money, I've returned to using cash only because Mm -hmm. I find it really works. But I'm wondering if the same is true for that generation now who are growing up, who've never used cash really. I think that it would be the same experience. They just don't test it and they would be infuriated at the notion of it. Now I have a 13 year old and they deal exclusively in cash because I make sure they deal Uh exclusively in cash. The brain pathways that I'm trying to lay down for them are this is your money and if you spend it, you don't have it for something else. And that's so much harder to model and teach in a cashless world. 
And it does get, I mean, you, you know this firsthand, and I think we all know this firsthand, regardless of what your financial situation is like, you know, it, it's really easy to run up money on a car yeah. and not notice it. Yeah, it's so easy because there's almost no, there isn't a credit card limit, but you can blow through that very, very quickly in a way that you can't blow through your bank account because you know, literally, like they'll say, I'm sorry, your card was declined, your debit, there's nothing in there, you're done, or there's no more money in your wallet, you're done. But with a credit card, many of the ones that we apply for have limits that are so far in excess of what would be an appropriate amount for us to borrow that we get really, really stuck. I was curious to read as well that stores have no obligation, in this country at least, as far as I can tell, to take cash. All they have to demand is payment and payment could be however they choose for you to pay. Uh, I, I was surprised by that because I would have thought if you have cash, you can use it. Not the case. No. And in fact, as you walk along any commercial district, wherever you live, you will see more and more stores that have a little sign up that says credit and debit only. And they do that some for safety and simplicity, some because they don't want to pay the interchange fee. So the the fee that they have to pay to a credit card company, they're fed up with it. They don't want to they don't want to pay it anymore. Eats into their profits. Small businesses in particular are quite conscious of that. So for sure, we are in a world where you simply will not be able to have your needs met in the absence of some sort of a piece of plastic. And that has its, I mean, above and beyond it, the the budgeting impact that has, that also has some, you know, it, it does put an unnecessary burden on people who don't have access to proper banking. And that still exists in this country as much as people who live in a big city may yeah. not notice it as much. But there's a segment of the population in this country who do not have access to the kind of banking you need to survive in a cashless society. 100%. If you're experiencing homelessness and you don't have a bank account, you don't have an address, it is very difficult for you to access your government benefits. It's very difficult for you to go down to the grocery store and get groceries or transact in other ways. A lot of things occur in an online world. Maybe you just have terrible internet access because you don't have the a service or you don't have a device or whatever. And so much of how we engage financially lives online. So not just paying for groceries or paying your mortgage, but all sorts of things related to retirement savings. They live in the online world. Bruce Sellery is CEO of Credit Canada. He's with us this half hour. That's Canada's longest standing nonprofit credit counseling agency. We're talking about the move towards a cashless society, really accelerated during the pandemic. And of course, everywhere we look, especially, you know, in, in places like the UK and Scandinavia, Canada, we're really moving quite quickly to not using cash at all. And in fact, stores don't need to take cash if they don't want to. So, you know, this may not be decided by consumers alone. Bruce, I was interested that one of the most more popular budgeting techniques on TikTok was a video showing you how to put different amounts of cash into separate envelopes. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's uh, that reminds me of being, I don't know, 1986 or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. But here we are. I mean, I guess it still works, right? What's old is new again. It uh, it has a name. It's called cash stuffing. Right. And it's like the new unboxing video. And you see these videos. If you haven't yet, just picture a video that only shows people's hands. And they take these wads of cash and the video is sped up. And you see them jamming these wads of cash into different envelopes. And it's not just like a white envelope you'd get at Staples. It's a little binder of these envelopes that they're 
plastic. They have names on them. There's spending challenges where you scratch and, and win certain things. It's a whole culture, but really it is a technique that has been around well before the 70s, right? It practically goes back to the Great Depression right. of when people had to utilize their limited resources very, very carefully. So I love that the TikTokers, you know, believe that they've invented something brave and new. I think it's fantastic. And it is a great way to engage people in a fun and visual way that, you know, that they didn't know about before. Because these days, I mean, with prices up so much, we all notice that the price of absolutely. So even what you think you're going to pay isn't what you pay anymore. And yeah. I feel like when you're paying on credit or debit that you don't notice it as much. How should we tackle it now? Because we are moving towards cashless. I guess we really yeah. have not much of an option here. Yeah. And I think it's it's beholden. We're all beholden to, to being budget conscious when it comes to it. Three things. Number one is save first save first because the damage is much more significant when you're overspending across your entire world it is less significant if you have already saved for the down payment on the house kids education the retirement the new deck you might need the new car you might need and if all that has been automatically transferred out of your account it's gone and then you're you know going wild with the the apple fritters that remains that's fine but sure buy an entire box of apple fritters fantastic so first automate such that your savings go first all of your fixed expenses are just gone and then you can go wild with the 12 cents that remains second is for many people debit is easier for them to manage than credit and i know be like i don't earn loyalty points but i use my debit card yeah but if you've got an outstanding balance on your credit card i would argue you have forfeited your right to loyalty points because the uh cost you pay to carry an outstanding balance it's like 20 to 30 percent in interest so you should go back to a constrained resource that is your bank account versus having the risk that you'll increase your credit card debt the third thing is you need to be vigilant so i have an app that sends notifications when i spend it makes it more difficult to be mindless it does a little bit to reintroduce the friction on spending so you want no friction on saving and lots and lots of friction on spending another thing to increase friction is to take your credit cards off your computer so you know how most people are like oh i need something on amazon it remembers my card number chrome remembers my card number apple remembers my card number remove it everywhere and then when you want to transact you're like ugh Got to go find my wallet. Where's my (laughs) wallet? And I, we had a a client. That little friction works, right? That little friction. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Your client. A client who put her credit card in her cat's kitty litter box. (laughs) I am not kidding. And so when she wanted that credit card, she really, she literally had to hold her nose and go (laughs) and dig for it, and it made a big difference for her because she had to be conscious. And that's like the number one thing. It's so difficult to do, right? It's, you know, we think about this in food terms and I am a massive treat consumer. I I mean, I look amazing, but I love (laughs) treats. So I can't have them in the house. I have to be mindful about my treat consumption and uh, we have to be mindful about how we spend. Know yourself. Know, know, know your own weaknesses, right? Yes. I mean, there are, and we all know when we make impulse purchases, and it's funny because of the way things worked out. Like I make impulse purchases purchases after work, which is like midnight 
oh, what a great thing, you know, what a great deal on those shoes, which of course you don't need. But that's yeah, yeah friction, creating friction. What a good yeah. idea. Yeah. And so in your case, your practice could be, I am not allowed to go on my computer after work. I'm just not allowed. And so instead, I'm going to go to the library and get four Danielle Steele romance novels. And I'm going to read hard them. Copies. Hard yeah. copies. Oh, hard hard co copies. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. I'm going to read Danielle Steele until I fall asleep at two in the morning. So you, it's know. a habit I, change. It is. I don't know what's the kind of friction I'm looking for, but I get the point. <laughs> I get the point. Bruce, sorry. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. A really interesting conference took place in Vancouver this week. Delegates from 18 Chinatowns from across Canada and the U.S. gathered in the city um, for the continent's first Chinatown Cultural Preservation and Revitalization Conference. 50 reps took part in the two-day event. Uh, the goal was to exchange ideas, of course, on how to revitalize, preserve, and secure the historic neighborhoods, promote some collaboration between community leaders on both sides of the border. Of course, many of the same issues facing a lot of Chinatowns across the continent are similar, even though some of them can be bigger or have longer histories and so forth. Vancouver's Mayor Ken Sim was there. The U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, was as well. The U.S. Consul General in Vancouver, um, as well as Federal Small Business and Economic Development Minister Mary Ng was there. And she took the opportunity to announce, so this is an exciting project for Vancouver, by the way. Uh, she announced that the Chinese Canadian Museum in that city had received about $5 million in new federal funding ahead of its opening on July the 1st. Part of that funding will support the facility's first exhibit called The Paper Trail to the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act, with the museum's opening date coinciding with the centennial of the passing of that act, which effectively halted all immigration to this country from China. I think it is but one of the most important stories that this museum is going to tell. And the inaugural exhibit um, of this particular story on this particular year, which is the 100th anniversary of this terrible piece of legislation, when its doors open on July 1st, um, is so important. Now. Um. There is Mary Ng. Of course, one of that that uh, initiative, the museum, one of the many underway to try to revitalize Vancouver's Chinatown. Uh, but there are representatives from Chinatowns in Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York, and others at this conference. Carol Lee is founder and chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, and she joins me now. Carol, thank you. Hi, Ben. Nice to be on the show. Yeah, this sounds like a really interesting initiative and just an interesting conference to bring people together. And it seems like something um, that, that would have been, there would have been a lot to talk about because I'm sure there are many problems <laughs> that are similar and many that are different. I think that it was, first of all, we, we felt very um, fortunate to be involved in, in putting on this uh, historic gathering. And I think it was surprising to us that despite, you know, these Chinatowns being in, you know, very different locations, there was a lot of similarities. Um, to the issues that we are facing. What are they? I mean, I can think of, um, you know, declining, aging, declining populations, and a lot of them sort of the usual urban creep. You know, like, uh, there's a movie out now that looks at New York's, you know, that area of Chinatown in New York City has always been very coveted to build things in. Um, yeah. But what are, some of the, what are the, some of the shared challenges that Chinatowns are facing? Well, I think, you know, just, you know, in, in general, um, People moving away from the neighborhoods uh, during COVID, I think it was particularly difficult. There was a rise of anti-Asian racism. Um, people weren't going out anyways, and Chinatowns were already on the decline. So I, I think it's an important sort of pivotal point in history where uh, if we don't do something, it's you know very likely that some of these neighborhoods will just disappear. 
I know. So listeners know you, your attachment to Vancouver's Chinatown is a, is a long and, uh, and deep one, is it not? It is. I, I'm, um, I guess, third-generation Chinese-Canadian. Um, my grandfather came over, uh, both my grandfathers came over in the early 1900s and gave a head tax in. My paternal grandfather was, I think, considered one of the sort of the early pioneers of Chinatown. So um, I've always had a sort of a, a long, uh, deep-seated attachment to the neighborhood. But, you know, like many others, I kind of went away to university and, and then traveled and, and you know, lived abroad. And when I came back in the early, I guess it was around 2005, came back to the neighborhood and, and found that it had really, really deteriorated. And, and if we didn't do something um, to save it, it would likely just disappear. And I think it's like many things. It's, you know, it's not until you realize that you're at the risk of losing something that you realize that maybe, you know, you need to do something about it and you realize how important it is to you. So, yeah. so we started the Chinatown Foundation in uh, 2011. Right. And I guess it's sort of been uh, one of the templates for other cities as well uh, to try to those other cities who are looking at revitalizing or, or keeping their Chinatowns. Uh, the Vancouver Foundation, Chinatown Foundation has been one of those initiatives that others have looked to as a, as a template to some extent, even though there have been challenges. I know. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I think sometimes when you're doing something, you don't see it that way. But it was in some ways really refreshing because we had these different leaders from 18 different Chinatowns and they actually did look to us and said that, you know, there's, there's really some good takeaways from, from what we're trying to do in, in our Chinatown. And we, the, the revitalizing and strategy has been based on three interconnected pillars, which are the physical revitalization, economic revitalization, as well as cultural revitalization. And I think it was kind of important to have all of those three sort of agendas working um, at the same time. So what were some of the things that, yeah. yes, indeed, you no, know, because they, they, they coexist, right? You can't possibly yeah. ignore the cultural part of it, but, or you can't ignore the business part of it because that's what draws lots of people into, into yeah. the areas as your restaurant has always proven, right? Uh, Chinatown barbecue, yeah. uh, which I've been, <laughs> yeah. which I've been to, of course, I have to confess. Really? But, yeah, of oh, course. So nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, nice. um, Thanks. Uh, yeah, well, it was worth, well worth the journey. The, the, uh, what are some of the things you would have heard this week that, that, that surprised you? Because I know you're, very, you're intimately involved in Vancouver's revitalization, but I'm sure you heard stories from folks from other Chinatowns that may have caught you off guard. Well, I think one of the things, I think in a negative way, was just finding out some of the really big challenges that they're facing down in the U.S. So um, in New York, they're battling, um, I think it's the largest prison um, that they're trying to rebuild in Chinatown, which will be the largest one in the United States. Uh, in Philadelphia, they're battling a, a, a big arena that's uh, trying to, it would probably in a lot of ways crush Chinatown. So in some ways, I had a lot, I felt very grateful that in Vancouver, at least we now, for the first time that I've been working on this, having three um, alignment of all three levels of government. So in some ways, I felt very grateful that I, I feel that we're on the right path. Um, and that there's a recognition of the importance of the Vancouver Chinatown as being part of the fabric of the city, the province, and, and really even the country. Um, but on the, on, the, on the positive side, you know, there's younger people coming in, and some of the initiatives coming out of New York, Welcome to Chinatown, where sort of there's a, a, sort of a digital um, component to it and, and, and trying to drive things through social media and things like that um, were really interesting and exciting. So. 
So there's lots to learn from other people. Yeah, that, that's another thing I thought was interesting because we always, I mean, I grew up in Montreal, so we, we our Chinatown was, was decimated in the 70s while I yeah. was growing up. Um, yeah. But people often think of it as being kind of frozen in time. And what's been interesting about about what a, a lot of what I've been hearing from different people in different parts of different parts of North America is that there is this attempt to try to figure out what a Chinatown will look like in the future. So it's not necessarily a museum piece. It's a living, breathing no. thing like it always was. Well, the only thing we know is constant is change. And I think that all we're trying to figure out is, you know, what does that look like? And um, I think that, you know, for us, it's honoring the past, but helping shape the future. And there's a very fine line between, you know, not wanting to preserve it like a museum, but then how much change do you want to have? And, and I think that we've done a good job. We have we opened the Chinatown Storytelling Center, which is the first permanent um, uh, exhibition space for telling the story of the Chinese-Canadian experience over the last 150 years. So we opened that in November of 2021. And it's been really, really fun to sort of see how people have gravitated towards that, wanting to share their stories and really feeling a sense of belonging. And in some ways, even a sense of pride in those stories. You know, I'm, as, as I said, a third-generation uh, Chinese-Canadian. And I think growing up, I wasn't didn't really feel that proud to be Chinese because you know, you want to try and fit in. And, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was the British properties. But, you know, so for this generation, I feel really happy that we were able to to build this storytelling center and in some ways um, sort of help people sort of see that we do belong. Yeah, it must make for some interesting yeah. conversations from people of different, different backgrounds, different parts of the city, uh, you know, different frames of mind about what a Chinatown yeah. should be. Yeah, I think that... Uh, you know, they're all going to look slightly different because we've all had different histories. But I think that um, there's a physical component, um, but it's really about businesses and people and relationships and, and having a place where people can come and gather and, and feel safe and, as I said, feel like they belong. Um, it was interesting for me when we we're doing the storytelling center that, you know, I realized how little I knew about Chinese history or Chinese Canadian history and how long it has gone back and, and the contribution of things like, you know, building the Trans-Canada Railroad. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's really fun, I think, in, in some ways to be able to share these stories and have people, and not just the Chinese, but, you know, it's for everybody to come and see how this is part of our Canadian history. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on our advisory board for the storytelling, it's like, you know, half the people are of Asian descent and the other half aren't. And it's really great. Because for me, this is telling the story of Canada, which is really one of immigration. Other than First Nations, we've all come from somewhere. And I love the fact that, you know, we're looking at this through the lens of the Chinese-Canadian experience. But we have so many people that come like, oh, this reminds me of our journey, you know, from different places. And so I think it's uh, a, a wonderful, I would say, offshoot of this is I've had people from different communities saying that they would like to do a storytelling center. Um, the Italians, they came out and working with some people in the South Asian community. So I think right. that's been a wonderful thing. 
Tamara Lee is with us this half hour. She's founder and chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. We're talking about a conference they hosted this week with 50 representatives uh, from Chinatowns right across North America called the Chinatown Cultural Preservation and Revitalization Conference. The name kind of says it all. Um, Carol, when one goes to to cities like Vancouver or, or Seattle or San Francisco, you know, there are so many different communities now. I mean, there's, you know, Vancouver has Richmond. It's massive and so on. Where do you see the importance of, of maintaining those those hubs that the, 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 the Chinatowns that we know that that people will identify with as the Chinatowns of cities like San Francisco and New York and you know and others Edmonton Calgary Montreal Toronto and and Vancouver as well I think what we found out is that you know Chinatowns in some of these you know older cities it the Chinatowns are an essential part of the social fabric of the city and it's not just for the Chinese I think that's what we found here was, you know, that it was loved by Vancouverites overall. And um, I think that that's why all of a sudden you've got sort of a, a lot of support from government. They realized that it, it, it had a place. It was something important to the people that were living in the city. And uh, I, I think that, you know, it's now for me looking like much brighter days. Uh, we got a big grant from uh, the federal government early this mm-hmm. year, $1.8 million. Um, from the federal, uh, the provincial government, we got a $2.2 million grant from uh, Premier Evie. And, and so I think that at least for our Chinatown here in Vancouver, I think that we're going to see a lot of change in the next year. Positive change. Did you, right. Did you get the impression from others who were at the conference that that, that is the, the, the norm, that other cities are also recognizing the value? Or is Vancouver a bit of the exception right now? I think that they are there's a recognition of the importance. Sometimes it's just how do you mobilize the resources that are required to make some of these changes? And um, as I said, it, we're sort of talking like what do, is the kind of change that we can see? And I think that actually something small, even like doing the Chinatown barbecue, sort of having an idea that, you know, you can create businesses, you can try and save some of the existing legacy businesses, but there's new businesses that can come in and revitalize that actually look like they're part of the fabric of the original Chinatown. So I've got a big project. Um, I'm trying to revive the, the Ho Ho restaurant that was yes. originally started in 1954 with a big iconic uh, neon sign. And, you know, those kinds of things, it's really interesting how excited people are to see that come back. So I think Chinatowns in some ways, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, there's a lot of nostalgia and happy memories that are associated, associated with these neighborhoods. So that's part of it, too. Everybody I knew that grew up in Vancouver, Chinese or non-Chinese, they would have gone to Chinatown to celebrate, you know, happy occasions. Right. How do you navigate the desire sometimes amongst those who, because, you know, I, I go to, to Chinatown in Vancouver, you see the, you see the grannies, like the, the, the senior citizens yes. doing their thing on a Saturday morning, and you think they don't necessarily want, you know, an, you know a, a trendy bar on their street, right? Um, how do you navigate the, the balance between sort of those who would be, who want, who would be a little bit resistant to change and the need to kind of evolve so that the community continue yeah. to, have, to have, have a good tax base, draw new people in and sort of continue to, continue to evolve? Because sometimes they they can they can clash they can and i think you're seeing that is one of the challenges in, in a lot of the chinatowns i think from our foundation standpoint and for me personally um the motto was that you know we want to make sure that no matter what we did the people whose neighborhood it was still feel that it's their neighborhood so for instance the barbecue restaurant you know everybody who works there speaks cantonese as a, their first language 
And so that they can still go in there. And I love when I go into the restaurant that it looks like, you know, it's been there for a long time. So serving the, the local residents is an important component, I think, of, of a revitalization. And I think that is what we're trying to do differently. Uh, you know, there's been great examples of, you know, revitalizations in other cities. But when you add the cultural component, it's really important because how do you preserve that? So it's not the same as, you know, you go into a, like a neighborhood, you, you know, add, put in some condos and, you know, get some younger people and you've got cool restaurants. That won't work, I don't think, in our Chinatown. So I was interested in doing sort of the older kinds of more historic restaurants. I, I think that I would gravitate to because, but you still need new things coming in. And if you want to bring in um, a new generation, uh, you have to be adaptable. So, so I think this is, this is a big, you're, you've identified that is a big challenge. Right. And, and, did you, and did you walk away, Carol, from this um, conference with all these other representatives from across the continent with a sense of optimism about the future of Chinatowns? Because I feel like for so long, it felt like there were certain ones, maybe Vancouver's, the ones that San Francisco's, the big ones would be okay. But a lot of the other ones were simply going to be slowly but surely taken off the map. Did you get a, a, the impression that maybe there's some cause for optimism here? I think so. I think that there was a real renewed hope and, 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 and a great deal of optimism of what we can achieve when we kind of share best practices and, and really, you know, dream big for, for these cherished neighborhoods. And I think that would have been the overall feeling from every participant. First of all, I think people just, because there was a lot of Americans that came up and they loved our Chinatown and actually allowed me to look through our neighborhood through a different lens. There's a lot that we should be really grateful for. Right. And of course, the big, the Chinese Canadian Museum in Vancouver opening um, on July the 1st coming up. It's going to be. It's July soon. the 1st. It's yeah. coming up. Yes. Well, another Carol thing Lee, to, to add. Yes, go ahead. No, another thing to add to the neighborhood, the richness of the neighborhood. So, right. no, it's, I think it's going to be, it's an exciting time for our Vancouver Chinatown. Well, Carol, thanks so much for sharing your time with me tonight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Ben. Uh, now we're going to take a tour right across the country because I don't know when the last time you sat in a restaurant is. I don't know how often you eat out. Clearly, a lot of us are eating out less these days because I don't know if you've noticed, but it's gotten quite a bit more expensive. Although the desire after after the lockdowns of, of a few years back to be out and about again is, is, you know, is there, right? So restaurants are benefiting from that as well, this idea that people do want to go back and enjoy some of the things that they did without for a little while there. Um, the crowds are back, of course, we think. Not everywhere, but in a lot of places. Staffing is still an issue. Um, reservations seem to be needed in far more places than ever before. When I first moved back to Canada from London in the UK, I mean, in the UK, you really had to make a reservation. If you want to go somewhere somewhat known, you really had to make a reservation a week or so in advance, maybe more if you wanted to get a table. And when I first came back to Canada, I'm like, oh, I'll make reservations. And I'd call the restaurant. They'd be like, can you call back the night before? Like, this is, we don't take reservations two weeks ahead. Uh, of course, now they do. Um, and the bill at the end of the night might be a bit of a shock because the cost of everything is way up. And of course, you'll be offered the option to tip it as much as 25%, which is another thing we've been talking for about as well. And we were talking about QR codes for menus, right? How much I really dislike QR codes for menus. Let me know what you think of them. one 399 
9898 is the text line. What do you make of the QR code? I gather it's starting to disappear somewhat, or at least paper menus are becoming more common again. Why not just use the chalkboard? I like those. Just, you know, the chalkboard with the menu on it? Those are always good. Uh, but let me know. But what is the state of restaurants right across this country right now? The great, the good, and the not so good? Uh, well, as we settled into 2023, my next guest set out on, on an epic coast-to-coast journey from as far east as Newfoundland to as far west as you clue it way out here on Vancouver Island to figure out what Canada's dining landscape looks like now and to find some new gems out there that may have popped up recently. Chris Nuttall-Smith is a food writer and restaurant critic. He's a resident judge on Top Chef Canada and his article on what is called the Great Canadian Dining Frenzy appears in the June edition of McLean's magazine and includes a list of the best places that he found on his epic journey across the country. And Chris Nuttall-Smith joins me now. Chris, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. This is an interesting time to do this because I think a lot of us, I mean, we don't eat out a ton. It's expensive these days, but I think we've all kind of noticed things have changed. The restaurant landscape in our own backyards has changed and you've done it from coast to coast. What is it like out there? It's it's a mix of things. You know, it's it's strange times for sure. As you said, it is expensive to go out to eat pretty much across the country. It's a lot pricier now, but it is also fantastic being out. I, you know, I came across, I ate at 57 restaurants for this package between January and some point in, in March, early April. And, you know, the places that are doing well, and a lot of them are, the staff are just so happy to be back. The chefs, the cooks, you know, the servers, even, you know, you'll see the dishwashers in the kitchen. People are relieved to be back, relieved to be feeling some sense of normalcy. And, you know, the figures tell you this, but you can also see it in dining rooms. Many places are packed. People are making up for lost time. And I certainly feel this when I'm out and I just ate in 57 restaurants. I still feel it. People are grateful to be out eating in restaurants again, to enjoying some sense of Real life, you know, being in packed dining rooms with happy people, you just, you can't ever beat that. Yeah, I, I felt that that what's changed a little bit is that, well, there's still a lot of emphasis on the food, obviously, because we're in that social media age and there's mm. Michelin stars in some cities now and everyone talks about, you know, the food in the latest, greatest place. But it's more about the atmosphere. The places I find that, that I'm happiest to be in now are the ones where you're just happy to be there because you know it's going to be expensive. So you, And you're talking my language. Yeah. I, this is what I look for. And I think what I tried to do with this package is to consider... Why do people go out to eat? You know, the food is important. And every single restaurant on this list, I think, is a leader in what they put on the plates. But it's the whole package. How are the staff? What's the welcome like? What's the feeling in the room? You know, how how much does it cost? I took value into account, which a lot of these fancy lists don't do. Is it worth your money? You know, so so all these things are are factors, but but you know, when 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 I hear from from someone, yeah, what what's happening in that room is important to me. I think, yeah, you're 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 an ordinary diner. You're like you're like most people, and and yeah, you're you're gonna get what what we just did here in McLean's magazine. So how did you set out on this journey? Because picking 57 places isn't obvious, and you don't necessarily just want to pick the 57 places that everybody knows in each of these places. You seem to have ventured a field, right? You've gone to sort of places that people may recognize, people that they may not. What were you looking for ultimately to try to paint that picture from Newfoundland to Vancouver Island? I think the process of coming up with a, a short list or a long list, whatever you want to call it, is it, it's in a way it's it's the most labor intensive part of any endeavor 
like this, any package like this is figure out where am I going to go? What cities am I going to go to? Are there cities that there's just, there's, there's just not enough there trying to figure out how you're going to make it happen. So, you know, it's everything from talking to people, you know, from coast to coast, talking to, to people who, who I know, who I know, you know, their palates or what they eat, uh, going through menus, looking at what are they serving? You know, how are they doing it? Trying to, trying to understand as much as you can about a restaurant from afar and, and, you know, like everybody else, you know, I'm on Instagram looking at pictures of the food, yeah. you know, but ultimately you don't really know until you get there. And it was a real goal of mine and of the magazine, certainly to try to do a list of places that are, it's not the same list that everybody else has. You know, we, we tried to shake up the criteria a little bit, make it a little more real world, take value into account. I'm a big fan of, you know, one of the very, very best things that Canada does. We have international restaurants. I mean, we yeah. have restaurants from around the world. Any city, I think, Canada, between between Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, you know, Newfoundland now has a, has a huge immigrant scene, and 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 there's a burgeoning international restaurant scene in St. John's. Why aren't we considering some of these as Canada's best restaurants? I I would argue, and my list argues that some of them really are. Yeah. I, I know, you know, I've been in a few places uh, that have struggled of late. I mean, staffing has become a huge issue, mm. right? Just the, the inability to find enough people to deliver the kind of service that they want. And and sometimes, I mean, you'll be sitting in a restaurant and you'll see people waiting outside and there's empty tables right beside you. And you think that never happened before. And then you realize it's a staffing issue. They can't seat the, the, the number of people that want to be in there. And that kind of, that can kill the mood too. That is the nightmare of every restaurateur. I saw that so many times where, you know, I would walk and the first time it happened, I thought, what? like, do I, do I smell? Did I forget to show? Like, there's a, there's a table there. Why won't they give it to me? And then you realize it's because they don't have any staff. Like they can't possibly take that many customers. You know, I spoke to one restaurateur and I, I mentioned this in the package who, uh, the going rate for dishwashers in Toronto post-pandemic was $30 an hour. I'm not saying that dishwashers don't work hard and they're not worth that. I think they probably are. But that was a huge shock to the financial system of restaurants. Um, you had almost a generation of servers, of professional restaurant staff who said, I can't do this anymore. They got their restaurant licenses. They became day traders. They became paramedics, paralegals. Some of them went to education school, you know, back to college. Some of them moved out of the big cities. So you had restaurateurs training entire shifts of service staff. They would have, you know, their entire floor. They'd look out at the floor and they didn't have one server who'd been doing the job for more than six months. For restaurateurs, it was awful. And I know for a lot of people who go to restaurants, it was bumpy as well, especially at the start. The service wasn't as good, as professional, as experienced as you might hope it to be. Food writer and restaurant critic Chris Nettlesmith is with us this half hour. He has a new article out. It's the cover article on this month's edition of McLean's Magazine about the great Canadian dining frenzy. And uh, it lists 20 great places to go. He's traveled to 57 across the country. I was, you know, I, I lived, in, uh, lived in the UK for a while and people used to laugh at me when I first moved back to Canada. So I'd be like, oh, yeah, we'll go out for dinner in a few weeks. I'll make reservations now. And they'd be like, what do you, you I'd call the restaurant. They'd be like, can you call back in two weeks, please? And now, and now, of course, everyone's like, yeah, you need to make reservations for some places. Like, you, you literally have to reserve months in advance now and pay for your meal up front. That has changed. So popular restaurants or, or restaurants with a bit of hype behind them, uh, you know, as I say, because we are in a restaurant hype economy now. The way most people learn about restaurants 
now is not, you know, the old ways. It's not through critics. It's not through magazines. It's through Instagram. Restaurants that are popular, some of them are very good and it's worth the effort. Some of them are, not to put it too lightly, trash and nobody should be reserving there. But, yeah. but uh, you know, some of them, you need to book 30 days in advance, not a day sooner, not a day later. And you better be sitting at your computer at 9 a.m. Um, and that's a common, common thing. The tables, the reservations that you most often find at very popular restaurants now are like Tuesday night, 5 p.m. or 9.30. That has really changed. And yes, restaurants, a lot of the most popular restaurants are now getting their customers to pay up front. When you reserve, you're forwarded onto a page where you pay the full ride right then and there. Uh, you can't cancel. You can't no-show. It's a real change in the restaurant landscape. I think a lot of restaurants would argue, hey, you know what? We have got the short end of the stick for so long. And right. listen, this, this part is true. People used to book three, three different restaurant reservations on a Friday night and decide at the last minute which one they wanted to go to. You would be shocked at how common that was. Restaurants lost so much business because they would have empty tables. You can't really do that anymore. And I get it. The other thing that's really happened, though, is a lot of restaurants, especially at the kind of upper mid-range and the high end, are moving or have moved into tasting menu-only formats. Yeah. Meaning, <laughs> you get what they're serving. If yeah. you don't like that, go some other place. Yeah, the Henry it's Ford tough. approach. Henry yeah, Ford it's, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating change because, you know, between getting paid up front, people reserving a month early, and you knowing exactly what your customers are going to eat when they show up, it dramatically changes the economics of running a restaurant. It actually makes the business, as long as you can fill those seats, it makes your financial situation quite predictable. It's never been that way in the industry. So it's been a, a benefit to the restaurant industry. I think for diners, it's still really mixed. You know, people are getting used to it. I think in some cases, the prices and kind of the hoops you have to jump through aren't, aren't justified. And in, and, and in other cases, we're just catching up with the rest of the world. It's it's true. I mean, you mentioned in the, in the article that you felt like the pendulum had swung, had been very far towards the client for a very long, towards the diner for a very long mm -hmm. time. And, mm -hmm. and since sort of the height of the pandemic, it's swung the other way. And it's become a bit like it's it's become a bit <laughs> a diner unfriendly to some extent. You do think it'll switch. It'll kind of they'll, there'll be a happy medium in there somewhere where service staff are well paid. Uh, we don't cancel reservations just because we're held to account for it. But somewhere there's a happy medium in there, I would have to think. I think we're going to get there. Look, I mean, restaurateurs, especially during COVID, you had so many chefs, restaurateurs who, who basically lost their entire livelihood. They had a lot of time to sit around and think, how can we do this better when we get back? And so they're trying stuff. They're trying things. They're trying new approaches. They're not all going to work. And, you know, we're also in a period right now, you know, I called it a restaurant frenzy. I think that's probably starting to soften a little bit, probably. if not a lot. When that happens, I think we'll go back to some midpoint where, yeah, staff are paid well. They can actually, you know, make a living wage working in restaurants. Maybe they're getting benefits. Maybe their work week's a little better. But you know, it also works well for the for the customers as well. And listen, I, I'm I'm a believer for the most part in the free market. I think the market is going to figure this out. One, this is always the, <laughs> the dreaded question. You went to fifty-seven. If I say one, what what's the one that just jumps to mind when you think about that place was awesome? There is a place in Montreal that I really kind of lost my mind for. I love it. It's called Monapin. That's French for my rabbit. Right. You walk in and the mood, the 
tempo, you know, the feel, every single thing about it. It's just so joyful. The food is original. It's food you're not going to find any other place on earth. The wine service there, it's run by wine importers who bring in just these incredible bottles of wine that there's not another list like it anywhere in North America. But you know, the best thing, in spite of all this expertise, in spite of how great they are at what they do, it's also accessible. You know, they have a way of talking about food that doesn't make anyone feel like they don't know enough. Um, you know, they're friendly, they're excited, they're enthusiasts. They're not going to tell you about, you know, the sulfur levels and the dosage and get right. all technical about the wine. They're going to tell you a funny little story about the winemaker and, you know, why the wine is called Garbage Night, for instance. There's a right. wine I fell in love with called <laughs> Le Soir des Poubelles. And, yeah. you know, they're just so happy to have you there and to host you. It's a place that really sticks in your heart. It really sticks in your mind. I just can't wait to go back. Chris Dunnell-Smith is with us this uh, half hour. He is, of course, a food writer, restaurant critic. He is a resident judge on Top Chef Canada. He, uh, We were just talking about an article that he has in McLean's magazine. It's the cover article in the June edition of McLean's about taking uh, a trip across Canada, 57 restaurants over a matter of a few months to figure out what Canada's restaurant landscape looks like. Now we're going to get outside uh, because it is also we're heading into the nice time of year. It's brief in this country, of course, uh, and it's camping season. It's RVing season. It's any way that you like to get outdoors. And Chris has also written a new a book about cooking outdoors called Cook It Wild. Sensational prepper head meals for camping cabins and the great outdoors. It's a great title, Chris. And uh, you've I mean, despite your restaurant tour, this is where you feel the best, right? You like to you like the outdoors. I grew up in the Fraser Valley and, and uh, you know, my family, we, we had a tent trailer, probably, I guess, when I was about 10. My parents really treated it like a motel on wheels, you know. I think I think they got it not because they were outdoors people, because they were kind of cheap. Uh, but, you know, it was a great way to spend time. And when I got uh, into, you know, senior years of high school and especially into uh, university, I went, I went to UBC, um, I would hitchhike out to the Rockies and, uh, you know, go hiking, backpacking in the summers. I would be eating, you know, power bars and Mr. Noodles, as I often yeah. say. And, you know, even after I became a food writer, I was writing recipes for the Wall Street Journal. But, you know, I'd, I'd go out into the wilderness and I'd be having like these, these <laughs> You know, craft dinner. Yeah. oh my god, yes, I have brought craft dinner camping before. And listen, I don't say that to, to knock that food, there's no, no it's right great. or wrong answer. You eat what you want to eat out there. But what I realized over time, especially with the help of some friends who are great cooks and who did a lot of meal prepping, who prepared their food before they got outside, is that you can eat so so spectacularly well. In the great outdoors, whether you're a backpacker, whether you're an RVer, whether you're a, a paddler, however you travel, Cook It Wild shows people how to break it down. And you and you put it out there. I mean, there are some some real keys. There's some tricks here that 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 make perfect sense, right? Because of course, I, I've I've done it. You know, I've carried lugged around tins of beans and all the things you you're supposed to eat when you camp, right? Right. Uh, unless you're going the usual sort of the the weekend, uh, you know, where all you're really doing is going like nine feet in the canoe and then <laughs> and then drinking beer, right? I mean, that, but but this is it, you, you make it sound so appealing this way. But prep prep is key, right? And freezing stuff. Prep is key, freezing stuff. And listen, I'm going to argue, even if you're going nine feet in your canoe and drinking beer, hey, why don't you drink some slushy cocktails too? Why don't you bring a chocolate cake you can cook in the fire that is 
child's play. It's basically as easy as baking in an easy bake oven, except you're doing it in your fire. Your friends are going to lose their minds. I have mac and cheese that you make at home. I have just these fabulous pastas that are so easy to do. I have the best steak, and I'm willing to basically bet my house on this. I have the best steak anyone is ever going to eat. I break down. Here's how you do it over a campfire. It's spectacular spectacular anybody can do it so it really runs the range like you can and there's stuff in there as well that you know you need to bring a cooler for you're going to keep cold but there's plenty of stuff in it you don't need a cooler there's a dandan noodles these are just spectacular szechuan noodles that can last in your pack for seven days i tested this recipe after a five-day backpacking trip in jasper national park a few falls falls ago we had we literally had campers backpackers coming up to us and saying what are you eating what how do i that? get some <laughs> they looked absolutely starved so it really runs the range but you know this prep as you mentioned it's learning you don't need to chop vegetables while you're balancing a cutting board on your knees at camp you can do that at home if you want to make a spectacular paella how about you cook everything down at home before you get there and then all you need to do is put those cooked vegetables in a pan add your rice and water everything's measured everything is ready to go and you're having one of the meals of the year you're not just having camping food you're having food you're gonna think about in december and wish oh my god i wish i were outside right now yeah i saw one uh, one reviewer it must be interesting given that you're a, you're a critic yourself having your cookbook reviewed but one, oh, one, person, yes, it is. one person said you can make these meals at home don't bother going camping you can eat these at home these are fine but it, you do add i mean it does canada's wild is so beautiful the idea that you you would could could enjoy the scenery that's so profoundly nice, and then kind of resort resort resign yourself to eating trail mix, which I've done, or or power bars, right? Like just the stuff yeah. you bring. It's easy. It's quick. Um, yeah. But the idea that you could complement it with with good food, it feels like we should have figured this out a long a long time ago. Well, you know, and there there, there are there are some people who do that, but you know, I think most people who do it still. They don't meal prep their food. They're busting their butt out there. Like when they go camping, they're really going cooking, you know, and that is not what this book is about. But yeah, I mean, you know what you say, that's 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 like the slap the forehead moment when you realize, man, it's peak produce season. You know, there's there's orchard fruit. There's great tomatoes. There's, you know, we're out in this beautiful place where, you, you know, you're on holidays, you're relaxed, you're with friends and family. So why are we choking back these survivalist style meals, you know? And, and, and part of it is, I'm not blaming the, out in, the outdoor industry for this. They're the outdoor industry. They're not the food industry. But when right. you walk into an outdoor store, what do you see? You see racks of dehydrated meals. Oh. We're all eating out there like we're headed to Everest Base Camp. With a little bit of knowledge, with a little bit of prep, you can do so much better. And you don't need to make food from scratch either. I mean, in, in Cooking Wild, I take people through, hey, here are the basic foods in the grocery store that are basically instant, that are delicious, that you don't have to do anything with, that you should think about putting in your pack because they're better than what you're going to get you know, at the camping store. You know, I, I list, here are the great cheeses you can bring camping. You know, I often say in Canada, we think as soon as a cheese has been sitting on the counter for more than five minutes, we think, you know, if you touch oh, it's it, you done. die yeah. of poisoning, right? Yeah. Cheese was developed as a food storage technique. I break down, these are the amazing cheeses you can bring outside and keep in your pack. They don't have to be refrigerated. And man, are you ever going to love them when you're out there. So there's a lot of those simple tricks as well. You don't need to be fancy to enjoy eating well outside. I show people how to do that in the pages of Cook and Wild. 
what I, and also oh, interestingly, because I was thinking, I don't really want to bring a cookbook when I go canoeing. And no, you, no, you, no, you, figured that, you figured that all out. <laughs> of course, there's no connectivity half the time or most of the time. So not like you can, you not like you can look it up on your phone. You figured this out with the book so that you don't actually need to bring the book or have your phone working to make the recipe. This was a this was a really big deal for me. I mean, there's there's it's not a lot of people, no matter where you are, there's not a lot of people who don't have a phone. You don't need to be connected, but take a picture of the recipes. We laid them out on paper that's easy to photograph. So, you know, the at camp portion of the recipe, which is usually pretty short, just snap a picture on your phone. That way you're not packing a book with you camping. But there's plenty of those features within the book. Every single recipe lists this is how much it's going to weigh in your pack. Oh. Every single recipe tells you this is how long it's going to last, you know, whether in a cooler or not in a cooler. Every single recipe tells you this is a great recipe for backpacking or paddling or car and RV. So you know what kind of what kind of trip they're ideal for. So I really tried to think about what are the features that are missing out there. The thing I'm most proud of though is first of all, this is pretty much the first make ahead prep ahead camping book out there but it's also one of the first camp cookbooks that doesn't just address car camping i think most of the camp cookbooks that have good food in them they're for car campers if you're yeah. for a ba- if you're a backpacker you know stick to your gorp mind your own business that's not what i wanted to do cuz i'm a backpacker so i wanted yeah. to fill it with recipes for every kind of outdoors person I love I love that I was reading actually I read a few different reviews of the book one of them was from the Associated Press in New York and of course they glommed right onto your poutine recipe because they thought of oh yeah of course there's a poutine <laughs> recipe in there but that would be how do you how could you possibly I mean poutine doesn't last well for like well, eight minutes when you get it fresh let alone when you camp with it how does that work. So here's, so, you know, the thing, this is a great article of the Associated Press, but I have to say, I was quite disappointed that they didn't say what kind of poutine. I'm going to walk you through the recipe. Yes, walk me through the recipe. I'd be curious. So this is a paddling or car camping recipe, unless you're a very committed backpacker, in which case, bless you. I would bring this backpacking, but I I don't recommend people do. Fingerling potatoes. You can get them at your produce store. Right. At home, you split them in half. You put them inside a tinfoil packet. I show people how to do it with butter, with some herbs, with salt. They'll last in your cooler like that for three, four days. You get a big hunk of burrata cheese. It's this super creamy Italian cheese. It's part mozzarella, part cream. You put that in your cooler. And the trick ingredient, and this is where it gets dirty. I call this dirty gravy because it is. You use a packet of Clubhouse grocery store gravy. So you roast your potatoes on the fire. You break this ball of burrata on top of it and it's like creamy and voluptuous and then you pour this hot gravy on it i'm telling you when you're out in the wilderness or where when you're in your backyard it doesn't matter this is one of the best things that anybody's going to eat this summer it sounds great i mean they're gonna you're gonna get a call from the folks in victoriaville or wherever they, <laughs> lay, they lay claim to the origins of poutine to tell you that wait well, a bless second, them all. what's with that burrata what's this burrata <laughs> you're talking about uh chris you can also make it with cheese curds just of course, for the record. if you want to bring it with you chris thank you so much for your time it's a pleasure i appreciate the conversation ben 